Um, many of you are repeat callers. You've been with us a while, so you know we do great calls every month. But if you are new, I encourage you to stick with us. There will be an announcement coming out in the next couple of weeks about another three-call series kicking off this winter. So December, January, and February, we will be partnering again with the Citizens Institute on Rural Design. And the topics for those three calls really involve helping you to take great ideas and plans and turn them into action. Many of our calls focus on brainstorming and interesting projects and things you possibly could do. And we know so many of you have done great planning processes or community design processes in your towns. So once you have all those great ideas, how do you actually get started? How do you find the funding to make them happen? And how do you build long-term support and leadership for the duration? So again, keep an eye out for that. Register and join us for our winter call series. With that, I am going to turn it over to our speakers to get started, introduce themselves a little bit more, and tell you about what they do. So I know Mike was having a little bit of technical trouble. Are you back with us, Mike? I'm okay, yes. Great. Okay. So let me turn it over to you. Thanks so much. Sure. Um, okay, uh, Rebecca, thank you. Um, I have a uh, short introduction uh, to the entire topic, um, and <laughs> there's uh, so much to cover, but I, just, I wanted to highlight some points. And then... I have an introduction to uh, Playborhood and my uh, particular work, um, and um, then uh, my colleague will, will, will talk about his work at Oh Heck Yeah, and then we'll open it up for questions. I think that's the, that's the agenda. Um, so first of all, I'm just to talk about some, some issues in general uh, that are relevant that we talked about uh, in preparing for this call about uh, play and placemaking. Um, and I've, I've defined four different topics that I just want to introduce as dichotomies or issues that that you might want to keep in mind. One is urban versus non-urban. And by my non-urban, non-urban, I mean anything that's not urban. Uh, uh, so in other words, uh, is there any underutilized land? Uh, if there's if there's no underutilized land, then that's, that's in, in this definition, at least an urban setting. Um, or in the urban setting, do you, you have to elbow someone else out uh, to change how a space is used? If you have to elbow someone else out, a big part of your task becomes political. Um, but if there's some underutilized land, and not necessarily unowned, but just underutilized, uh, you just need government to get out of the way. Just, you know, please let us use the land how we think we, we are using it. That's one point, urban versus non-urban. Another issue, uh, demand-driven versus supply-driven. So uh, if you're supply-driven, your focus is the land. How can we use this land better? Uh, but if you're demand-driven, uh, you, you want to build, build it where is best for your audience. And that may be private land or it may be illicit use of public land or, or whatever, but you're focused on the people, not the land itself. Um, a third issue I just want to bring forth is age. So adults who are independently mobile, they can drive, they can take public transportation, they can walk uh, very far. Uh, they prefer what we normally think of as what we call public space. Um, however, uh, there are two ends of the age spectrum, children and, and the elderly, the, the older elderly, let's say, uh, they can't drive, they can't take public transportation independently, they can't do these things on their own. So the best solution for them must be a stone's throw from their front door. So, um, in other words, uh, what we normally think of as public places uh, aren't, don't really serve those constituencies very well. They don't serve children very well, they don't serve uh, elderly or particularly older elderly very well. Um, the fourth issue that I wanted to bring to the fourth uh, is uh, death versus breath. Some great places uh, uh, have a very deep engagement for a limited group of people. 
So they're culturally transformative. They're life-changing. Um, but others affect far more people, but much less deeply. They're, they're broad, but not very deep. So it's a fun place to hang out for an hour every once in a while. Note that broad and deep public places are best suited to independently mobile adults because they can get anywhere. They can go this place, they can go that place. They go to many places on their own during the day. But children and the elderly need more deep, intimate places. That's all they've got, uh, to, you know, to be independent. Um, so there's two views of placemaking. There's the conventional placemaking uh, philosophy that you're most familiar with. It's supply-driven. It's focused on independently mobile adults. Um, and it's broad and not deep. Um, but there's this other vision, I guess my vision and some other people that I've, I've written about and uh, my colleagues uh, who are um, uh, on the other side of that coin. Um, we're more focused on demand-driven placemaking. In other words, focus on the people and do whatever, whatever it takes wherever they are. Uh, secondly, children and elderly people particularly benefit from demand-side uh, uh, placemaking. And it's deep, not broad. It's about people in one place spending a lot of time there. So that's my that's my introduction uh, to the whole issue, and I just wanted to to, to bring forth some uh, some of these these issues. Uh, there's demand driven versus supply driven, urban versus non-urban, uh, age, and death versus breath. So Rebecca, would you like me to to, to talk about flavorhood and um, introduction to to my work? That would be fantastic. Thanks, Mike. Okay. Okay, so I started to provide an overview for, for all of us. Uh, now I'm going to talk about my work with Flavorhood, uh, and I'm just going to zoom through in, in uh, five to seven minutes what I normally uh, speak about and I've written a book about uh, for uh, speak about for a long time. Um, so uh, I'm going to focus on a couple things. Uh, first of all, I want to talk about a, a third place, the, the old concept of a third place that's very fundamental to, to, to my work. I'll talk about some examples briefly and then spend most of my time on my placemaking story uh, in particular. So a third place, uh, some of you may be familiar with this concept. Um, there was a sociology uh, back in, I think, the 80s maybe, named Ray Oldenburg, who coined this term, 70s or 80s. Um, here's the idea. In human history, there have been three places where people, in people's lives, where uh, they get some, you know, the, the foundations of their social lives, their social selves. So the first place is their home. Um, the second place is their workplace or school, but then there's this third place, and that's a more informal place. You can show up any time. You know, think of the Cheers Bar. Um, think of, uh, for me, when I was a kid, a place where, you know, the, 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 the stretch of street between my house and another house where we played ball every day. It's a place you can just show up any time and just see people you know and have fun with them. Um, well, the third place, uh, as a physical entity, has largely left, uh, vanished from uh, Western societies. Uh, uh, we have a virtual third place, and that's Facebook, and that's not, that's not adequate for a lot of people, including myself. So um, I, in my book, Flavorhood, and in my blog, Flavorhood.com, I talk about a lot of great neighborhoods with play, or what I call flavorhoods. Uh, they're real third places for the people who live there. Um, uh, I just There's, there's a, a, probably a dozen of them that I describe, and the book don't have time to describe them, but there's some wonderful places. They span from you know, poor urban um, uh, uh, South Bronx uh, to an uh, affluent area where I live in Menlo Park, California, to a small town, uh, to um, uh, urban setting outside of New York and in Portland, Oregon. Anyway, I, I just want to spend the rest of my time talking about my placemaking story in Menlo Park, California. Menlo Park is um, is right next to Stanford University. It's it's a nice tree-lined suburb. Uh, it's got great schools. Um, a lot of people think it's a great place to raise kids, but um, I think the streets are pretty boring. It's pretty quiet. Um, but it's getting much better. And uh, getting better through 
some of the work that I've done, but also just this general movement that we've seen um, in a lot of places uh, where people are demanding that, that uh, our, their, their towns be more vibrant. So uh, in my remaining time, I'm just going to talk about um, some of the efforts that, that I've made um, in my neighborhood and, and the transformation that we've, we've achieved. Um, so I really made a three-pronged effort um, in my neighborhood. And again, I've, I've written in my book and my blog about probably a dozen neighborhoods, not just mine, but for the, in this limited time, I'm just going to talk about my neighborhood. Um, and um, it's a three-pronged effort. So three things that we've done, three areas. One is cultural. Um, so um, in, our, in, in our house, in our, you know, in our household, we have no live TV. We have no video games. Um, just don't do it at all. Kids manage themselves. We don't really hover over kids. We kind of let them um, manage themselves. I'm talking to my kids down to the age of three and four. Um, and even when they're two and three, they, we, we start them on that road. Um, my kids now, my three boys, are nine, six, and four. Um, uh, taking risks is okay. So they, they take risks. They, they jump uh, on the trampoline. They jump from a playhouse onto a trampoline. Um, we have doors open at all times. And um, neighbors are invited to drop in at any time. Um, so that's one prong of our effort is cultural. Socially, um, we're present outside, in front, in front, not in the back, every day. Um, we don't watch TV in our house. Um, Woody Allen has a famous um, adage. He says 80% of life is showing up. And so we show up outside, in the front yard, in the street. We talk to neighbors, uh, so on and so forth. We walk and bike rather than drive when we can. We knock on doors, and we're outside. The third problem, which I'll spend a little bit of time on the rest of my time, is about the physical transformation we've made in our, in our yard uh, that's affected our whole neighborhood. We renovated our yard and made it into a, into a third place. Um, so the physical transformation is basically rethinking every square foot of our front yard and our backyard for use. If you think about most yards, suburban yards, even urban yards, uh, small-town yards, um, there's, there's just there's a lot of wasted space, a lot of space that is just out there to conform to what other people's yards look like. Um, and they look pretty, they look like something that you think the yards should look like, but they're not really optimized for use. So we've tried to rethink every every part of our yard. Um, front yard, um, we have, I'll just talk about the physical facilities we've added that have really contributed to, to making a third place where kids and families come every day uh, to hang out. We have a huge picnic table in our front yard, um, and uh, it's, you know, it's much better, we think, than the backyard. Our backyard has fences all around our, back, our front yard. We see people walking by. We invite people to come over while we're eating. We're out there quite a bit. Um, we have a bench uh, that encloses a projector, an Apple TV, um, and um, that projector projects through plexiglass to a whiteboard. Uh, and I can control that, that uh, Apple TV talking to the projector using my iPhone. Uh, and so we're playing music. We're playing uh, slideshows there pretty much every day. Uh, there's a 35 feet of whiteboard with pens. Uh, available outside, um, and the pens are there for anybody to use. We have a fountain next to the sidewalk, a playful fountain, and it really invites, encourages dogs and little kids just to, 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 to slap their hands and to slap their paws in it. Um, we have a driveway that's redone um, as a play space with no pavers. Uh, there's a big mural of our neighborhood on it. We have a sandbox with coins, foreign coins. The kids can pull the coins out as treasures. And we have community art. Um, we have two pavement murals, uh, the, the, the driveway mural I mentioned, and another mural on our sidewalk. Everything's painted. And we have two mosaics on our fence. So we have a lot of community art that, that, that we have contributed to making, and so it's really meaningful to us. Uh, and we have a play river, a little river in our front yard uh, that kids turn on and, 
and uh, raise corks and raise the, raise the boats that they make. That's the front yard. In the backyard, um, well, I'll just say that we hesitated at first to make our backyard into a real uh, hangout space, a real third place, because we want people to be in the front yard. That's where that's more social. That's where we can see people. But the backyard, the backyard is, is also important to us. We've got some, we've got some some land there, so we decided to use it. Um, we have an in-ground trampoline there, which is a very fun social facility. It's probably the best thing we have in our front or backyard. Um, it's just a blast for adults and kids alike. Adults often end up taking over the, the in-ground trampoline, I mean ground-level trampoline, uh, whenever they come over our house with their kids. We have an organic vegetable garden. Uh, we have uh, a large playhouse um, with white, bars, white, white boards, lots of graffiti. We have rock climbing toeholds outside the, the playhouse. Um, and again, you see lots of adults climbing up that playhouse at the top. The top is nearly 12 feet high um, when their kids are around. And we have a large swing set out there in the backyard as well. Um, I, I really, uh, you know, can, can answer questions. It's a real happening place. Anytime people come over, um, honestly, people have a blast. It's really fun. Um, it's become kind of a neighborhood hub for us. Um, but that's all I have to say right now, and I'll be thrilled to talk uh, to answer questions later on. That's fantastic. Thank you so much, Mike. I want to come to your house. That sounds amazing. Um, so thank you, you for that great introduction. We will hear more from Mike. If you have questions as you're listening, please jump onto our Google Doc and type them in. I see some folks asking questions right now, including someone who wanted to see pictures of your house. So we'll see how we can help. Um, if you are just joining us, welcome. This is the Community Matters Conference Call on Creating Fun Places. We are going to hear from Brian Corrigan in a minute and then open it up for some conversation and some questions. So if you have just joined, please place yourself on mute. Sit back and relax, and we will get to you too. Brian, do you want to tell us a little bit about your work? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, since we're talking about urban and rural, I'll start with the rural. I actually, I grew up in a small town in Montana, Anaconda, Montana, and I actually attribute um, probably getting into placemaking through a high school float that I designed because, um, you know, uh, I actually founded the French Club my senior year just so I could build my own float for the homecoming parade. And, you know, the more I kind of really start to think about that, I was like, that's really kind of probably my first uh, del or dive into really kind of uh, placemaking and really kind of putting art, culture, creativity out onto the street. So fast forward like 30-some years, 20-some years, and um, now I am in Denver, Colorado. And this May, we actually uh, just found out that we received an Art Place America grant for $200,000 to really bring play back to the street. So the name of our project is called Oh Heck Yeah. And we're working with the Denver Theater District, the Downtown Denver Partnership, um, two creative firms here called Moset and Legwork Studio, and we're turning downtown Denver into an immersive street arcade. So we're going, if you're familiar with Denver, we're going to be taking over two blocks on Champa Street, which is between um, the 16th Street Mall and 14th Street, and we're going to power this first-of-its-kind arcade through uh, large-scale LED screens, projections on buildings, and then we're really kind of thinking about how we can use social media to really kind of, like, help tell this narrative. So to kind of get your mind around what this thing will look like, um, let's just say, you know, as a, as a user, 
you'll go ahead and you'll go to our website, and you can learn about what games are actually being played um, on the screen. You can learn about the narrative, but then you can actually go to Twitter, and you can follow all of our characters that we've designed on Twitter, and you can actually interact with them. So they're going to be tweeting um, as if they are um, alive and that they live in Denver and they're you know, their night job is to really kind of work in this video arcade. And uh, so, anyway, so that's kind of the online experience. And then when you come down to the street, and, of course, this is all kind of, uh, we haven't really solidified what the games are going to be like, but um, to kind of go into what this immersive uh, experience will feel like is, say, like, one of the games is, um, you know, like... Uh, you have to jump on a teeter-totter to go ahead and launch one of the characters up to grab coins. So as a player, you'll be on the street, and we're going to use a Microsoft Connect, so it measures your body. And so when you jump, your player on the screen will jump, and that will then go ahead and launch the other character up into the air, and he'll have to go ahead and grab out all of the different coins. So another example could be that we project on one of the buildings in that area, and then everyone likes to play whack-a-mole. So maybe is what we have are the characters are popping up in the window, and then as a user on the street, you use your smartphone to go ahead and to knock out the character. And, you know, once you knock out the character in the window, of course the window, window shatters, you know, all through pretty much projection technology. And, you know, then it starts to really kind of, make you feel like you're inside of this game. And to kind of further that feeling, we're going to be using um, street art to go ahead and to really kind of like put that art down on the street. So it really kind of starts to build out uh, these interactive environments. So the thing that I think is really interesting about this is that this particular arcade, this uh, street arcade is loca located in the Denver Theater District. And, um, you know, I like to think of it as really we're taking what traditional theater out of the buildings, infusing it into the street, and really kind of making it interactive for the next generation of what we see as theater. So a lot of people are kind of like, yeah, this is cool, but, you know, why is it important? Well, I just really kind of start really kind of looking at really or pointing people in the direction of, uh, all the research that is being done around play and the benefits of play. Um, the research really kind of shows that when you play with other people, it makes you more creative, it makes you more curious, it builds trust between strangers, and, you know, it's kind of like, well, why shouldn't we be infusing that kind of positive energy into the street? And I'll say that really at one point that really did used to exist a lot more. Um, and then I think another kind of argument that you can really kind of think about is I just say, you know, it's no coincidence that really the most innovative firms right now all have spaces dedicated to play in their offices. So you think about like Google or Apple or IDEO, any of those companies really doing cutting-edge work. You know, they have a ping-pong table, whatever, all in their offices because they understand the power of play to really kind of fuel ideas. But, you know, our thinking is why do we have to confine that to an office? Why can't we go ahead and take that out of the office and infuse it into the street? 
And once you start infusing that into the street, what does that do for a city's economic output? So hypothetically, we could say person A with an idea uh, plays with person B who has the means to make that idea happen. And now that we're using play to connect them on the street, they have a shared experience where then that shared experience gets them talking, which then could possibly lead to a prototype, which then could possibly lead to a new business. Or it could be just company A plays the company B, you know, they have the shared experience, and maybe that turns into a new contract between the two firms. So we really kind of are excited about this type of possibility, especially since we're in a downtown business improvement district. And, uh, you know, I think the one thing that we always keep on saying about this, going back to the play, is that we will not see any of those other positive benefits if what we design is not fun. So at the core of really what we're trying to do, we're just trying to uh, really turn downtown into a place where you can stumble onto the fun. So that's my work in general. So I'll turn it back over. That's great. Thanks so much, Brian. Sounds like so much fun. I have my travel list ahead of me. I need to go check out Mike's backyard and then head to Denver and see Brian's work. <laughs> so we have a ton of questions coming into the Google Doc today. You all have so many enthusiastic ideas and want to know how to make this work, and we are not going to get to all of them. So I have a request for all of you before we go any further, and that is to share your wisdom. And even if you don't feel like you have a ton of wisdom, share your best guess. So dive on in. If you have an idea or a response to anyone who's asked a question, please type it in. Stick in your thoughts. You can have a little conversation on there and answer back and forth. We will do our best to get to some of them right now. I will probably combine a few of them. And then even after the call today, you can continue to go back and answer and ask more questions and, and keep this lively and a fun space as well. So I won't waste any more time with introductions. I do want to get into some questions for our speakers right now. I will actually start with Mike. Brian really started to hit on some of the benefits of playful streets, playful communities in terms of infusing energy, sparking ideas, innovation, economic development, et cetera. Mike, in your work overall and even in your own backyard, what benefits have you seen? You've put a tremendous amount of time and energy into making this amazing play space. How has that played out for you, and what are you and your neighborhood getting back from it? Um, okay, I'll try, try to be brief. Uh, a lot to say. Um, fundamentally, we have, uh, and I talk about culture a lot, because we're not interested in just having kind of a fun little time once every couple weeks. Uh, we want our kids and my wife and I, my life as well, uh, every day to be transformed. Um, and so we really have transformed our lives. Um, we have uh, an open garage. We have open front door and back door as long as the weather's not too cold. And here in Northern California, we have pretty good, we have darn good weather. Um, we have an open door policy. We have people just showing up um, pretty much every day. Um, our kids are running inside, running outside every time, every day when I come home. Um, my kids are working on some weird, usually building project uh, uh, with uh, wood chips in the backyard or, or cushions in the basement. Um, they're, they're relentlessly making things, building things, creating their own uh, sort of imaginary social worlds. Um, and um, that has spilled over into the community. We have people showing up uh, almost every day to our place, as I said. Uh, and then we have parties, and when we have parties, we have always have birthday parties um, 
at our house rather than a jumpy house place. Um, and for you parents out there, you know those those places which I can't stand. But uh, you know, it, it, it's it's just a huge eruption of fun, uh, and it's fun for adults and kids. It's kid driven, uh, and I would say. You know, to some extent, and that's a great thing, um, that because kids are just sort of more instinctively playful than adults are, uh, they get it going, and then adults uh, end up, like I said, taking over our trampoline, taking over our playhouse a lot of times. Um, uh, and it's really festive. So we get it's fun, which is awesome in and of itself. Do you see benefits beyond that? Do you see increases in social capital or physical activity, economic activity? Yes, sure, sure. Uh, as far as physical activity, um, you know, this is just one aspect of the way we raise our kids. So um, we also ride ride bikes to and from school every day, and I'm not always with my kids. Uh, sometimes they ride on their own. Um, they're in great physical condition. Um, uh, my, my son, Marco, who's nine, uh, won a, a 5K run last year without practicing at all. <laughs> um, he, he, you know, he's, he's, he's out there running every day. Um, and, and socially, um, we have a very, you know, we have a close community. Not everybody buys in totally to the neighborhood concept. We have, like I said, lots of people showing up every day. Um, and uh, just and cognitively, I mean, our kids are making things, building things, making decisions on their own. Uh, socially, um, we encourage our kids to go over other kids' houses and knock on the door and, 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 and initiate play on their own. Um, and even to go places um, on their own sometimes, you know, to, to, to go to a store to pick something up for us or to go to the barber shop and I'll meet them there. Um, lots to say, but, the, you know, the, the idea of self-reliance is very important to us. And it stems from the, the foundation, which is our, our yard, which is a place where they can have fun and be creative um, independently and, and, and being self-reliant rather than us hovering over them all the time. Great. We have one caller who's wondering a little bit about what type of evaluation work has been done a little bit more broadly or what type of evidence there is for some of these benefits. When you think about communities that have done great work creating playful public spaces, is anyone measuring that, or, and are they seeing any measurable changes? It's a, it's a great question, and um, I wish there were more systematic research. There is one researcher who um, did uh, some studies published in uh, peer-reviewed journals um, about the city repair movement in Portland. Um, if you if you looked at Playborhood.com or read the, the book Playborhood, you'll, you'll see that I, I write a lot about uh, the city repair movement and Sherrod Square, which is the sort of the ground zero for the city repair movement in Portland. Um, they quickly, uh, uh, Sherrod Square, and there's a lot of other places like it in Portland, are intersections that have been just taken over by the neighbors, the people who live there. They paint the street, uh, the pavement. They put in installations in every corner. Uh, they violate all sorts of rules about sidewalks and berms. Um, but actually, Portland has amended their laws to make this possible. Um, and these are called intersection repair or repaired intersections. Uh, there's a researcher who used to be a Portland state. His name is Jan Semenza. J-A-N is the first name. Semenza, S-E-M-E-N-Z-A. Uh, he's, he's published a few studies about, say, five or ten years ago, um, and, and documenting uh, the increase in quality of life, uh, uh, emotional attachment, um, um, social engagement of people who live uh, in this one intersection called Sunnyside Plaza, Sunnyside Piazza in Portland. Now that's the one, the body of research that I'm aware of. Great. Brian, how about you? Have you come across any research or evaluation that's really proving the types of benefits you think faces have? Yeah, well, I mean, I think, um, you know, one of the researchers that I really um, 
have dove into her work is really just Jane McGonigal, and um, she uh, is at the... And uh, anyway, her name is Jane McGonigal, and she's at the Institute for the Future, and I definitely just suggest going over to that website and just kind of reading a lot of uh, what she's put out there. It's good stuff. That's great. Thanks so much. For those of you who don't know Jane, she is really well-known and has a fantastic TED Talk, which we'll make sure it gets in here. She's done so much great work thinking about games and how different types of social strategies can make people think differently. Um, we also have someone else who's asked a question about economic impact and studies on that, whether there's any examples or studies proving the economic impact such as dollars, foot traffic, vacancy rate, et cetera, that would help her convince her government and decision makers that this is a good idea. So if anyone listening does know of studies or examples that could help Shauna in New Hampshire with this, please do help us paste them into the Google Doc. Oh. I want to move on a little bit. Unfortunately, we had to mute all the lines because we had some fantastic music in the background, which is awesome, but didn't help us here. So I'm just going to go ahead and ask a few other questions that callers have already laid out there for us. We have a number of people asking similar questions. They're already working on something in their community. Maybe it's working to improve their streetscape or they're in the planning process. Probably that process is pretty serious. They're talking about how wide the sidewalk should be and where different buildings should go. Nobody's talking about play. This is just not part of the typical conversation that goes on in communities. So I'm wondering what advice either of you have to open up that conversation. What are some good questions to ask or techniques to inspire the public to start thinking more creatively about their streetscapes and their communities? Brian, how about we start um, with you on this one? Okay. Well, you know, I think, um, so I always come at uh, these types of questions from really kind of like design thinking. And it, design thinking, of course, is like, you know, like, how can we go ahead and really start small, prototype, test the idea, and then learn from it? And uh, just here in Denver, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, they did a, a better block in the um, Santa Fe Arts District, because particularly there, the sidewalks are very narrow. And so part of that was, you know, again, starting small, they built out with really just, like, plywood and lumber um, the sidewalks to be the size that they would they would prefer to see long term. And I think by prototyping that, by allowing people to actually um, get a sense and you know of what that experience is in real time, um, is does tremendous things. And so I think as you know people are going into these planning processes, I just say prototype. You know, just think about small ways that you could go ahead and demonstrate to the larger public what things could be or how they could be different. And, um, you know, I think that we go through a lot of this, especially with the arcade, because definitely it's a very conceptual type of project that we're doing here. And uh, I just happened to be on Twitter the other day, and it was just talking about how uh, 90% of people need to see it before they believe it or understand it. And, you know, that just really kind of has stuck with me because I think that's exactly the same way with all of these different types of projects is really just thinking, you know, how do you start small? Because I think we all have the tendency to think really big. And it's more about, okay, so here's our vision at 10. How do we start at 1? And just as an example with that is, 
You know, I moved to Denver about four years ago, and I started working on contracts with uh, an initiative with the Office of Cultural Affairs here called Create Denver. And one of the projects that we did was uh, a pop-up store. And so for for uh, if you don't know what a pop-up store is, a pop-up store is really just a temporary retail space. It takes over uh, empty retail space and just kind of puts a store in there. And so... We decided to do a pop-up store that would sell 100% locally designed goods. And we had, like, absolutely no budget for this thing, like zero. And we were just like, well, you know, we're not going to let that stop us. So we went and we got the space donated. Uh, we found all the artists. At that time, we I think we started with 40. And... Um, the person I was building the store with, we actually, I'm like, well, let's just go dumpster diving around downtown Denver. And we found every sheet of cardboard, I think, that was in downtown Denver that week. We brought it back to the donated space. And we used the cardboard to build pretty much all the tables, all the store decorations. And, um, you know, we completely transformed the space. And I don't think that if I had that type of parameter of zero dollars, um, we wouldn't have started thinking creatively about how to build that space because we would have immediately wanted to jump to the 10 instead of the 1. And really by being a part of that experience, um, that's what made me really start to see the value in this type of stuff because the people who would walk in to this store, you could immediately just see their light bulbs turn on when they walked through the door which is not something that you typically see in a normal retail store. And, um, you know, everyone would be like, wow, this is so cool. I am so inspired. And then people would start talking to you about their ideas, their dreams, like what they want to do. And, you know, that store, it was a store, but it was much more than just a store. I think it was actually a starting point for a lot of people to really kind of take their idea off the shelf, dust it off, and, like, try to make it happen. And I think all of these projects have to start with something just like that, even with Mike, of just, like, you know, using your own front yard. Like, you know, make it as easy as possible and then just start testing it. See what works. And then that allows you to then go ahead and to move on to the 2.0, the 3.0. But as you're starting to move up, then you're also starting to engage different people, and then that's how you really start building momentum to get to the 10.0. That's great. That sounds like a really neat example. And I'm seeing somebody writing in, Joe from Montgomery, Alabama, is running a similar pop-up store next month and wondering about some good best practices. So, Joe, we'll make sure we get a couple of links and answers in there for you. If others have done pop-up stores, give Joe some advice on our Google Doc. That would be great. Um, I want to turn this to you as well, Mike. When communities are working on plans or thinking about their streetscape in really traditional ways, how would you get forward-thinking people to start thinking about play and creativity? How can people get that into the conversation? Well, um, uh, I, I thought about this question before uh, the talk because um, we the topic of, the, of this conversation is play and placemaking, but I... I sort of talk mostly about placemaking. Um, to, to me, um, play is is fundamentally how you get engagement with people. Play is what you know. There's many ways to define play, but it's it's really about um, 
you know, letting people do what they really want to do, um, whatever that is. And so uh, the banter in the Cheers bar is play. Uh, you know, it's fun. It's what they, you know, they're, they're, they're engaging in the thing that is the most fun for them that they enjoy doing. Um, so it doesn't have to be physical play. Um, a lot of everything that we do in our yard, pretty much most of what we do in our yard, is not physical play except for our, our, our picnic table. Um, but I think I just want to introduce one, I guess, one way to think about this uh, to answer your question. Um, I think a lot of public places um, are built to pass through, um, and and I, I'll give credit to one of my favorite organizations in this space, the Project for Public Spaces. Their website is pps.org, if you're not familiar with it. Um, they're really interested in, in engagement in places and not how many people pass through, but how many people linger and how many conversations they have and how many interactions they have and, you know, how they stop and linger and what they do. Um, I actually go a step further than, than, than PPS. I'm interested in, in, you know, how transformative have these, have, has this place been in people's lives? How has it changed their everyday lives? How has it changed their habits? Uh, and that's what's really, really important to me. Um, you know, I, I guess it's great if we provide a place where someone can stop by every few weeks for a half hour to grab lunch. But um, and that's, that's what a lot of public parks are in, in urban settings. But I'm more interested in how can we provide a third place for people to come on a regular basis and many times a week, and uh, for that to be their social outlet. Um, uh, and uh, and you know, believe it or not, you know, it seems like we can't do that anymore in 21st century America. But we've done it here, and I've written about many other places where they've done it across the United States. That's great. So in the Community Matters audience, we have a great mix of people, everything from the biggest cities in the country down to tiny little towns of about 500 people. And I'd love to talk about that for a second. Brian, your work in Denver is so urban, it's pretty hard to imagine doing exactly that in a tiny town that doesn't even really have a main street. Um, Mike, the work you're describing in your backyard is amazing. It makes me so jealous, in part because I live in a rural community on a really busy road with absolutely no neighbors in sight and no safe way for anyone to walk to our house, so completely impossible. I'm wondering if either of you have some great ideas for communities that are either really rural and don't have the ability for people to walk and really interact on the street, or just towns that are really small. What advice would you give people in those settings? Um, well, well I, I could just... Um uh, just re-mention and maybe refine what I talked about with, with the, the idea of a third place. I think it was a hangout. Um, you, and I think in, in, in these cases, you really want to create a draw. You want to create a place that is really compelling, that, 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 that is a draw, that, that people from, you know, who, who aren't necessarily next door want to come to. Um, and so what are the elements of a place like that? Well, you know, at least for children, um, but also for adults, specifically for children, it's got to be playful. It's got to have fun stuff that, that that people want to engage in, the kids want to engage in. Um, um, but also, um, there's got to be people there. Um, and uh, you know, so if if if, if people show up uh, and see that there's nobody there, they get the feeling very quickly. Hey, there's, there's you know, there's a low chance that people are going to be here. I want to go where people are, where people I want to see are. Um, and so. You need to populate it. <laughs> you know, you, you need to you need to somehow and and you know, on the local level, this is there's a lot of cajoling and pushing and shoving that has to happen, especially when you start a place like this. You got to get people to go and show up and be there 
And if and if and maybe you target the time that that, pe- that that you tell people to expect people to be there. From my front yard, it's it's, it's after school. It's you know from three o'clock to, to five or six o'clock every day. Um, and then in the summer, it's also the evenings after dinner. But uh, it's got to be a compelling third place hangout. If it is, people will show up. Okay, Brian. How about you? We know you grew up in a small town. What do you think are some great ideas that would work there? Sure. Well, you know, I think, um, first off, I think it's just like every place has a problem, right? So the problems of a rural place are much different than an urban place. And I think that, again, creative thinking is really just about problem solving. So it doesn't really matter where you are. If you apply creative thinking to those problems, then you're going to come up with a creative solution. So just in the context of my work, we had a we actually had a meeting this morning, and we were kind of talking about, like, well, you know, if we were going to take this arcade really, like, throughout the whole state, what would that look like? And, you know, I immediately kind of was more drawn to places that maybe people wouldn't normally go, like, or, you know, or or that aren't just, like, let's say a town or something, like, let's say a lake. And, of course, this is, like, very tech-heavy, but, it's, you know, this is just kind of, an idea to show how it all can really loop together is that, you know, um, we were talking about if you put, like, misters in a lake and then shot light onto it, like, say, a projector, and with your smartphone, you could actually design an app where people could fish in that lake. And, you know, when you caught one, the light would project onto the mist and a fish would jump out of the lake. So I think that even though, like, And, of course, like, what we're doing requires, like, you know, big budgets and all of that other kind of stuff. But, you know, again, like, what I was kind of saying earlier is that that's like 10.0. It's more like how do we start at the 1.0? And I think by starting at the 1.0, that's, again, where you get the community engagement. And just like Mike was saying, it's like the the people are the cornerstone of every place, right? Without them, you don't have anything. So, you know, a lot of, you know, through my work here in Denver, it just didn't start off with, like, you know, this crazy thing. It was really rooted in really kind of, you know, what is the community? What's the culture here? Like, what makes it distinct? What kind of talent exists? And, you know, once you kind of know that, then you can start really bringing people together. And then that's when the really interesting stuff starts to happen because that's where, you start getting the ideas. That's where you start getting the buy-in. And that's how you start creating the momentum. So I think, you know, from from my perspective, it doesn't really matter if you live in an urban center or if you live in the middle of nowhere because it's just about bringing people together to do extraordinary things. That's great. So we have a lot of people asking questions that are hinting at a couple other issues here. It sounds like we have a lot of community residents on the phone with us today, a lot of people who would love to see their communities be more fun and have some fantastic places that are more engaging. They're concerned a little bit about how to get started or how to actually do some of this work in a few aspects. I think there's some people who say, wow, this would be really fun, but we don't have any funding. There's some other people who have tons of great ideas but are wondering whether they'll get arrested if they go out and just start messing with something on Main Street. 
with people who don't know quite how to even broach the conversation at the community level. How do you even get started if this is not part of this conversation at the government level? What advice would you have for folks like us who have ideas and want to make some progress but don't quite know where to start? Um, well, I can say a couple things. This is Mike. Um, I'll say, first of all, I, I, in, in the book Playerhood, I, I talk about, I, I write about not only my neighborhood, but roughly, I don't know, eight or ten others. Um, and um, it's great having all the examples because they take different approaches. They're, you know, some are super urban, uh, uh, low income. Uh, we have suburban, we have rural, we have everything. Uh, cold weather, warm weather. Uh, it's interesting. And, and some of them are, are, community-driven, supposedly community-driven, just totally driven by consensus decision-making process, and some are more autocratic, frankly, like my, my neighborhood. I just decided I wanted to do this and, with my wife, and, and, and we did it. Um, but one common theme, which is really interesting, is that even in those communities, in those neighborhoods, where um, they say that they have uh, some consensus decision-making process, in reality, there's, a, there's one very strong leader who really is the energy is the is, is comes up with the ideas and pushes a lot of the initiatives to make them happen. So I would say very strong leadership is actually essential. If 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 everybody's standing around at the starting line looking for each other to figure out how we're going to make this decision jointly, like it's not likely that things are going to happen. You need a you need a Brian who's got this great creative idea who pushes. Um, you need you need the, you know a lot of the, you know the, the, the different people that I've written about uh, to really make something happen. Uh, and and uh, regarding money, um, money helps. You know I, a lot of things I talked about that cost money certainly. Um, but um, you know again I'll credit the PPS uh, again. Um, they they drove they driven this home uh, in a workshop that I attended at their headquarters in Manhattan. Uh, you know place making 101 is seating. If you have seating. People will come and sit. Now, that's not so interesting for kids, but it's very important for adults. If you give them seating, if you give them something to eat or drink, um, that doesn't cost a lot of money. It doesn't have to be really expensive. Um, at Sherrod Square in, in Portland, um, at one, one corner, there is a, a couch with, a, with, with, with a, a roof, of, actually a living roof over it, and there's a, a solar-powered tea stand. Um, and people come there. Any, you know, Every day I've seen it. They come there, they grab a cup of tea, they sit down, and they chat. Uh, those are really simple things that can happen. But I would say, you know, take some leadership or somebody to take leadership and just move forward and, and, and push forward a vision. Uh, it's not going to happen from the community organically, I don't think. That's great. And it's interesting. I'm going to take this opportunity for a quick plug. Mike has plugged a number of our past Community Matters conference calls and some future ones coming up. We've covered things like Better Block Project, which actually I think Brian mentioned, We've covered third places, and next month we're going to be covering lighter, quicker, cheaper community action, which is one of Project for Public Space's main framework. So if you're interested and you really want to figure out how to move forward, how to sort through the ideas you have, and find some quick, cheap ideas that you can just get out there and do really fast, then don't miss December's call. Um, I want to ask one quick follow-up, though, Mike. These are really neat ideas. Uh, are people going to get arrested if they go out and put a couch on the street corner? How do you advise working through? Well, this well, they 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 might. <laughs> well, they won't get arrested first of all. Uh, they might get reprimanded somehow. Um, I'll just be very really, try to be brief. The, the story of Sherrod Square, the early history of Sherrod Square in Portland, is that uh, they tried to get a permit. They were refused by the Department of Transportation. They were surprised. Um, and so then, uh, 
one official from the Department of Transportation grabbed their arm as, as, as uh, Mark Lakeman and uh, his colleagues were walking out of the Department of Transportation office in Portland. This transportation official grabbed their arm and said, you know what, I like what you're doing, but I can't give you official sanction. I'll give you a party permit. So have a block party. So they had a block party, and they painted the street and put all this inter- all this stuff on their intersection. Um, so they violated the law. I mean, they violated the, the, the wishes, let's say, and I guess the, the, the letter of the, the Transportation Code of Portland. Um, but that set things in motion, and eventually in a couple years, uh, Portland passed what is still called the, I think it's called the City Repair or the Intersection Repair Ordinance that now has in-city ordinance that... Um, if 51% or 50% over 50% of residents of an area want this to happen, then, then uh, you know, then it can happen. Then they can have a, a painting on uh, the pavement of the intersection. They can have uh, facilities on the berm and on the sidewalk at the at the corners. They can have all this stuff. So um, they move forward. Um, in, in terms of in terms of insurance, um, I would say I just. I'm just not thrilled with the whole prospect of asking an insurance agent to, to tell me how he can cover me and, and increase my premium. Uh, I haven't done that. Um, it's, I don't know, I mean, I'm sure there's a possibility of, of someone getting burned by, by inviting people into the yard or inviting people into their public space to do something to actually engage with it. Uh, but to me, uh, it's, it's worth it. it, it you know, the, the increased uh, legal liability pales in compar- comparison to the value of, of you know, increased quality of life that people have. Yeah, that's a great point. Brian, how about you? Any ideas for just how people can logistically get the ball rolling? Well, like I've kind of, you know, just to reiterate what I've already said, I think it's just thinking about what is the easiest way to get it out there. And, you know, if you want to paint the street, you know, and you need to get a permit, just go get chalk and use chalk, you know what I mean, and just, like, show people what it could be, you know, or if you want to do it on the sidewalk, wherever. And I, I think, um, you know, I think that there's a lot of worth in just figuring out how to get started because it knocks out the barrier, right? And I think that a lot of times, and myself included, it's that you put a lot of barriers in your own mind and then you can't jump over them. And so I think if you can go ahead and really kind of think about what is the easiest way to just get something started instead of trying, again, go to the 10, just do the 1, um, you know, I think then that also kind of starts to be the energy you need to keep moving forward and growing your ideas and, um, you know, start to realize the, the bigger vision that you have in your head. That's great. So we have a few questions we haven't managed to get to at all here. I'm going to see if we can hit one or two more before we have to roll this up for the day. We have Caleb in Arizona asking about the role of art in creating fun places, and that certainly does seem to be a theme. There's so much that you've both talked about that certainly has an artistic bent, even if it's not some of the things we think about as main community art. But what do you both think? How can community theaters and local arts organizations be part of this process? Have you seen a real art theme running through this kind of creative placemaking. Yeah, I mean, I think everything that um, we've been doing in Denver really, uh, you know, arts and culture are at the heart of it. And, um, you know, I think that with the creative sector, I mean, you're working with people with lots of ideas and lots of talent. And so, you know, for example, for us, um, that is really kind of, again, why we're doing this project as an arcade because, you know, we see video games as kind of like 
a gateway into experiencing the art because, you know, I think in terms of uh, arts and culture, video games maybe probably rank more in the mass market. But at the same time that we're producing these video games, we're engaging all of a, a whole bunch of different cultural partners here in Denver. So, for example, like we're working with the Colorado Symphony Orchestra to um, to actually uh, produce the score for the, the video game soundtrack. Um, we're working with um, improv comedians to power the Twitter profiles that bring our uh, video game characters to life. Um, we've talked with, like, the Denver Art Museum and some other local galleries about mounting art shows in the alleys that are off of Champa Street. Um, and, you know, we've also even just talked with the ballet about doing performances on the street where maybe one of the performances could even just be square dancing where you get to come square dance with the ballet and we have a local musician that plays and a caller and all of that. So, you know, I think that really when you're working with the creative sector, the possibilities are endless for what you can do with them because they're, you know, so dynamic. Yeah, I would just, uh, I would just add, it, it makes a really big difference if the art is, it's kind of like what I said about suburban yards, if, is the art to look at, or is the art culturally meaningful to the people who, who live there, the people who have a stake in the place? And obviously the latter is much more important to me than if it'd be free to look at. That's not to say we, we, we want to, you know, put ugly art or ugly non-art uh, up in our neighborhood or anybody else's neighborhood. Um, I think that there's a role for facilitation uh, from artists, but I think the concept, I'll, I'll talk about for, for a moment, our, uh, our driveway mural. Our driveway mural uh, in our yard uh, is, is a beautiful mural of a map of our neighborhood, and it has annotations that are meaningful to the kids uh, and people who live there. Um, it, it's, it's drawn at a scale that I planned out uh, is um, a scale that uh, works with uh, 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 Lego base plates for putting Lego houses at any lot in the neighborhood uh, and, uh, and Hot Wheels cars and HO trains. So um, it really works for us, but the structure was provided, you know, the, 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 the sort of the, 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 the aesthetic structure was provided by an artist who really knows how to make something look nice, but then we provided the, the content and the culture in it. That's a great suggestion. Well, we are coming awfully close to the end of our hour here, so I want to pause just for a couple of quick announcements before we hit Mike and Brian with one last question to close out today. So first of all, thank you so much to everyone who has joined us listening in today. We're really glad to have you. Um, again, don't be afraid to join us for the next calls coming up, including Lighter, Quicker, Cheaper in December, which will really help you think about taking some of the ideas today and coming up with some places to start, how you can get out there tomorrow and start making a fun place in your community. We will also make sure we get some links into this Google Doc for past podcasts of other calls on related topics like do-it-yourself community building, pop-up shops, third places, better block project, you name it. So I hope you'll check those out if you haven't joined us before and you'll find more great resources. Um, I also just want to put in another plug for the Google Doc. We've had a lot of people chiming in here today with this wonderful but please help us continue to add to it and flesh it out. We would love to see more answers to some of these questions. We would love to see your resources rounding it out. There are a couple of neat ones in particular. There are a bunch of people wondering about 
pictures of some of these innovative, playful public spaces. So if you've done something like this in your community and you can share a link to a picture, that would be great. Or if you even know of some, that would be wonderful. Hazel B. in Manitoba has another great question. She's wondering if anyone has a database of places that pass the popsicle test. And for those of you who don't know what that is, it's a really fun test in itself. The question is, you know, do you live in a place where a kid could walk from their home to a store to buy a popsicle and back and be safe? So if you live in a community like that, um, we'd love to hear where it is and what works about it. And finally, thank you so much to the Orton Family Foundation and Community Matters for putting these calls on. Again, we will be back with you next month. But to close out today, I want to thank Mike and Brian so much for all of their advice and wisdom on the phone. They both do tremendous work. So check out Brian's work in Denver and follow Oh Heck Yeah for some great innovation. Check out Mike's work and go read Flavorhood if you haven't done it. And I'm going to put them both on the spot with one final question today. For those who are listening in and want to get off the phone and go do something right now, what would you tell them to do? What's the best way to get started tonight? Either one of you can start. Oh, uh, this is Mike. Uh, I know this isn't terribly playful, but in, in the spirit of lighter, cheaper, quicker, and just fundamental placemaking, get a bench and put it outside. And uh, put it in a nice, comfortable place. And then go there and sit there yourself and see if you can get other people to hang out with them. That's a great suggestion. Brian, how about you? Number one way to get moving. I, I would say get off the phone and I go out and just, like, try to make it happen. That's what I say. Just start right now. Great. I'll share one more from one of our callers. We have Pat Rumba, who's the founder of Tacoma Plays and is now forming another new nonprofit called Let's Play America. I'm sorry, we couldn't pull people off the phone to actually talk today, but Pat says go for a walk. Go get your family and friends and have a nice, playful walk together. So most of you are probably in parts of the country where that will be a, a warmer and lighter enterprise than it is here in Vermont tonight, but we encourage you to get off the phone and try any one of those great tips. So thanks again so much to you all. We will follow up and send you a link to today's Google Doc and a link to the podcast next week so you can listen in again. We are so glad to have you, and have a great evening.